Well, we're going to begin a series of Easter messages today for the next five weeks. We're going to step out of Thessalonians uh, for Easter. Uh, that last song we sang was actually a special request by me. Uh, I would like that to be sort of our Easter theme song, uh, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. I think the lyrics of that uh, song are just phenomenal. Uh, and I praise, I thank the Lord for our praise team uh, for uh, I'm not praising them. I'm praising Christ in them uh, for them being willing to uh, serve us in that way. Uh, this morning, I want us to uh, focus our attention. Uh, we're going to look at a different aspect of uh, what happened that first Easter uh, over the next five weeks. But I wanted to look at maybe a topic or a part of the Easter story. There's some extra outlines. If you need an outline, raise your hands uh, to take some notes. You'll notice the outline forms a little different. Uh, it's more it's set up more in a devotional type uh, so that you can take that and um, use it during the week. Uh, most of the questions will be answered during the message. Maybe some of them aren't. Um, so and then there's some deeper things that you can do on your own. But my goal is to get us. Uh, thinking about Jesus, one of the uh, what's the word, not dangers, maybe one of the dangers of being a Christian is that we fall more in love with religion than we do with Jesus. Uh, or we may fall more in love with church than we do with Jesus or with ministry or uh, maybe we we could even fall more in love with the Bible than we do with Jesus. You know, it, it becomes just knowledge and study. Uh, so one of the hopes I have is is that as we uh, approach Resurrection Sunday, uh, we notice that all of this is centered on a person. Uh, you know, and I tell people all the time, uh, they say, I'm against religion. And I say, good, we have something in common. So am I, uh, because religion never saved anyone. Uh, only Jesus saves. So I want us to focus on Christ. Uh, but um, go to uh, Matthew chapter 19. We're going to read. I, I was all geared up to run through this and get this finished. I don't even know if we'll finish this today. You know how it goes around here. Um, we'll get started uh, and uh, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. But I don't want to rush through it. Uh, but if you go to Matthew chapter 19, let me see. Uh, where do we want to start? What verse? I just want to you can listen as I read the scripture uh, if you don't want to follow, if you want to take a more devotional approach. Uh, actually, it's Matthew chapter 20. I'm sorry. Verse 20, Matthew 20, verse 20. Uh, that's where we'll start. But um, just listen to some scripture uh, to set up what I want us to look at today. Uh, I want us to look at the cup, uh, the cup that the Lord had to drink, the scriptures say. Uh, and, and what is this talking about? And there's some even uh, deeper nuggets of revealed truth in these passages that maybe uh, we haven't really taken note of before. And keep Isaiah 53 that we read earlier in the back of your minds uh, and starting in Isaiah 52, where we started, that's a. A great Easter passage to reflect upon, uh, to go back and read that this week. Uh, but in Matthew, sorry, Matthew 20, uh, and then I know we'll end up in Matthew 26, <coughs> starting in verse 36. But and there's also some Philippians, but it says here, then the mother 
of the sons of Zebedee. Uh, anyone remember who those two sons are? Yeah, James and John. Uh, and they were part of the inner circle of the three. Who was the third? James, John and Peter. You guys, come on, don't be afraid. Uh, Peter, Peter, James and John, they were part of the inner, inner circle. Uh, so their mother, how adult of them to send their mother uh, to talk to Jesus, you know, and one of the other gospels says that all three of them went to Jesus, but they had their mother speak for them. Uh, these are grown men. Uh, interesting. Uh, all three came to Jesus bowing down and uh, she's going to make a request of Jesus. Uh, and I think this request probably comes from uh, something that happened earlier in chapter 19 and verse 28. Uh, Jesus had told them there in Matthew 19, 28, said, you who have followed me when the regeneration comes, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, uh, you also will sit upon 12 thrones, judging 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus had promised them uh, that they were going to share some of his glory. And also they were probably asking him this question that's coming up because we know they were proud uh, and yes, gasp. The disciples were self-seeking. Uh, at times, uh, I'm glad we've learned from then. None of us are self-seeking, are we? Uh, yeah, some of you, if you're visiting, that's sarcasm. I'm sorry. I try to keep it at a, I still, you bought me a wonderful t-shirt. says, I speak fluent sarcasm. The problem is, I put it on and it looked like a crop top. So, uh, actually a crop top with a muffin top and I have to... So as soon as I'm in shirt condition, I'll wear that uh, for uh, no. So but we know they were self-seeking and they're going to ask their mother's going to ask Jesus, hey, can you guarantee that one of my sons sits on your right hand and one will sit on your left hand? I mean, OK, if, if I didn't think that for myself, my own heart, it would be funny. OK, right. Um, but the scriptures say that this was a common discussion among the disciples. Uh, many times in the scriptures, uh, the disciples are jockeying for position in the coming kingdom. Uh, very interesting. So that's what she asks. And Jesus says to her, I'm back in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus said to her, uh, said to their mother, what do you wish? And she said to him, command uh, that in your kingdom, my two sons uh, will sit one on the right and one on the left. But Jesus answered, said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And of course, because they are a reflection of who we are, they said what? Yes, we're able. Oh, my word. Wow, they just, they, they didn't get it. Uh, they were overconfident. They didn't really realize what was coming, even though he'd already told them. He said to them, my cup you shall indeed drink, uh, but to sit on my right hand and on my left, this is not mine to give. Uh, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Uh, now, if you go to Matthew chapter 26 uh, and pick up in verse 36, I believe we're setting a stage here. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called what? Gethsemane. Uh, and said to his disciples, sit here. Uh, will I go over there and pray? You know, and just to pause, some of the other Gospels tell us uh, that uh, 
they went here often. Uh, this was a place where Jesus would take his disciples many, many times. In fact, they had gone there so often that Judas had decided uh, this is where I'm going to take the soldiers to arrest Jesus. I know he's going to be there. Uh, this was where he went often to pray. Uh, it's really a good idea to have a, a private, quiet place of prayer. Uh, it doesn't matter, you know, find a place uh, that you like where you can go to uh, and be alone for prayer. So they came to Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here. Uh, you ate, sit here. Well, I go over there and pray. And he took the other three with him, Peter James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, that makes 11. Uh, who's missing? Yeah, Judas is missing. And began, uh, Jesus began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. You three remain here and keep watch with me. And Jesus went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter. It's interesting, isn't it? He takes uh, Judas leaves, takes the eleven, says, you eight stay here. You three come here. Then he comes back to the one. Uh, I mean, Jesus had a circle of friends and he was uh, had a deeper friendship with some than others. Uh, but he said to Peter, so. Couldn't you keep watch for me for even uh, with me for even one hour? So Jesus went away a second time and he prayed, saying, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. Again, he came and he found them sleeping. And so he left them again and he went away and he prayed a third time. Uh, saying the same thing. Now, here's uh, a big change. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Uh, behold, the hour is at hand. So there's no more praying about it. He, he got his answer. Uh, there's there's no more anguish. Uh, there's no more distress. There's no more grieving. Uh, he said, Father, if it's possible, don't let this happen. OK, I have my answer. This is God's will. I accept it. Uh, the hours at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Do you notice that he says, get up. Let's go. Let's move toward those who are coming to take me. What did he not do? What would the opposite have been? Yeah. Behold, let's get up. Let's get out of here. They're coming. Isn't that fascinating? He said, behold, let's get up. Let's go meet them. They're coming to arrest me. In other words, Jesus laid down his life of his own free will voluntarily. Uh, he was not he didn't run. He didn't hide. Uh, he faced what he knew was God's will. Go to Philippians chapter three, verses seven and eight and verse ten. Philippians three, verses seven and eight, verse ten. So we saw Christ's cup that he had to endure. We see his suffering. But now look at the connection for those who want to call themselves disciples. Paul says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as what? Loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss 
when I compare them to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. But I only I count all those things that I've lost as just rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know Christ. I'm in verse 10 now and the power of his resurrection and that I may know the fellowship of his what? Sufferings being conformed uh, into the likeness of Christ's death. So the disciples did not understand. Uh, Paul understood the, but the disciples did not originally understand. We don't I don't think we understand uh, what's happening here is that we're seeing that the greatest glory goes to those who suffer the most for Christ. The greatest glory goes to those who suffer the most for Christ. They said, let me sit on your right hand. Let me sit on your left hand. He said, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? All that suffering and all that death. They said, sure, we can. Uh, And Jesus said, well, uh, you don't really know what you're saying. But yeah, you are. You're going to drink that cup of suffering. You're going to suffer. You're going to die for me. Uh, The cup when you see that word, the cup, especially in the Old Testament, it's always referring to the cup of God's wrath. Uh, the cup in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's divine wrath and judgment against sin. Don't forget that. It's a picture, a symbol of divine judgment and wrath against sin. Now, we don't have time to take that rabbit trail Uh, But the wrath of God is not inconsistent with the love of God. Uh, It it may be difficult for us to figure that out in our own heads. Uh, And God's wrath and anger is not capricious. I love that word. That's a good word. Capricious means dictated by mood. Uh, When my dad was home, we had to gauge his mood before we approached him to figure out what kind of mood was he in. Uh, I want a permission to go somewhere. It's best to ask him when he's sleeping. Because uh, then you can say, oh, yeah, you said, you know, I heard you say. Mom, mom. God's anger is not capricious like that. It's not up and down according to his mood. God's wrath and anger is part of his holy character. It's an attribute. It's always right. It's always just. He, he is compelled to direct wrath Toward sin. Because he is holy. In the frightening news. As the greatest American preacher Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s said. Is that woe to the sinner who falls into the hands of an angry God. Because God is holy he can't tolerate it. But praise be to God for Jesus. uh, Who came. uh, To take our place. Listen to Psalm chapter 75, verse 8 says, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, and it is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs. It's interesting, a couple of verses in the book of the Revelation, uh, chapter 14, verse 10 in particular, talking about the great tribulation period says, if anyone worships the beast in his image during this time, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. 
And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Get this. This this I, I haven't figured this out yet. So if you're if you're scratching your head saying I don't get it, you're part of a big club. Uh, it says they will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day and night. Uh, I am mystified uh, that the torment and the suffering of the wicked happens in the presence of the angels and the Lord Jesus. And in some mysterious way, that brings glory to God. Uh, I don't I don't really fully grasp that, but I know the scriptures teach it. Uh, and so I believe it. But let's look at this. What is he? And I think this is one of the questions on your outline. By the way, most of this, some of this is original with me. Most of it is not. You'll see the very last little thing on your outline. This is a devotional Easter study that I picked up at the Shepherds Conference that I'm going through. And I just wanted to share some of it with all of you. Um, so go to Mark chapter 10 with me. Mark chapter 10. Starting in verse 35, Mark chapter 10, verse 35. This is the same account that we read in Matthew with a little different perspective. So James and John, they come with their mother. They ask to be seated with Christ in his glory. Now, Jesus's answer, it startles them. What, what, what he says to them uh, is very shocking to them, and it should uh, startle us as well. Jesus says to them, you do not know. I'm in verse 38. You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized? He's not talking about his water baptism. He's talking about when you go through something difficult, you're being baptized as if with fire. Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. So as we look at what drinking the cup means, uh, I think they were probably startled uh, to hear him say this. First of all, it's only this is something he's talking about that's only for disciples. This is something that happens only for those who claim to follow Jesus Christ. This is not referring to salvation, but this is referring to what true disciples go through as they are following the Lord after they're saved. Something else very interesting here. We know from the wording and from the context in other passages that this cup that's being drunk by the Lord, and then he says his disciples will drink it too, is not just a one-time event. You see, because sometimes we think the cup of God's wrath or the cup of suffering that Jesus had to drink happened only on the cross during those six hours. But that's not what these words are saying. The cup of suffering which he drank and which we drink incorporates whatever comes along during a lifetime of following Jesus, wherever it leads, whatever that means. And the cup does not end until death or if we're alive when the Lord returns. 
we see that in different types of ways at different places in the scriptures. Uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. Uh, it's kind of, he's kind of saying the same thing. Hebrews 12, 1 says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So Paul's finishing his fight, his course, he's finishing his race, he's finishing his cup. And he talks about in 2 Corinthians 11, you know, all those things uh, that he endured. Remember, I've been in prison. I've been beaten without number. This is 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 23. I've been in danger of dying five times. I've been uh, beaten with uh, whips three times. I was beaten with rods. I was stoned once. I was shipwrecked uh, night and day. I've been in uh, deep prisons. I've been in dangers from rivers, from from thieves, from my own countrymen, uh, from the Gentiles, been in danger in the city, I've been in danger in the wilderness, on the sea, uh, from false brethren, I've had labors and hardships, he says, many sleepless nights, there have been times when I've been hungry and thirsty, without food, I've been cold, I've been exposed to the elements, and then he says, on top of all this, I have the daily pressure of being concerned for all these churches. That's a cup. That's a big cup, right, that he's drinking out of. That's not a sippy cup. I think my wife still has those, don't you? Did you finally get rid of those? I'm shocked. She kept the kids as sippy cups forever. I mean, it's weird when you go into the living room and your 20-year-old son is drinking out of a sippy cup. I'm like, what are you doing? Oh, I don't know. I just saw it in a sippy cup. It's like, oh, my word. Okay. But this is no sippy cup. This this is a big boy cup that that Paul is drinking out of. But go back to Mark 10, because there's a lot of little gold mines in the text that give us more detail. Notice Mark 10, 38. I think this is the next question on your outlines. Jesus says in Mark 10, 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm being baptized? The reason we know this isn't just about his death, but also about suffering in his life is because these verbs are in the present tense. They're not in the future tense. That's really important. You could literally read this verse as saying the cup that I am currently drinking The baptism that I'm currently being baptized with. Jesus was already drinking the cup. It wasn't something that was reserved for him exclusively for the cross. The cross was still a year away approximately from when he's speaking this. Drinking the cup is not a one-time event. Drinking the cup consists of multiple and collective events over the course of his life. And over the course of the life of a disciple, everything about his life that was necessary for him to be the Messiah is included in his cup. Every second of every day in his sinless perfection, enduring the 40 day temptation by Satan, qualifying as a man of sorrows, being victorious over multiple attacks by earthly enemies. As well as all the tiredness and the weariness from an, we don't often think of this, an unbelievably busy ministry schedule. Which really 
If you remember your theology, each of the Gospels presents Jesus differently. Does anyone remember Mark is portraying Jesus as a. This is a hard question. Some of you are like Mark presents Jesus as a servant. Jesus as a servant. Matthew presents him as king. Mark presents him as servant. Luke presents him as man. And John presents Jesus as in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John presents Jesus as God. So the gospel of Mark is presents Jesus as a servant. So you see the suffering servant with this uh, unbelievably busy ministry schedule. That was all part of his cup. The culmination of his cup will be the most horrendous part of it for sure in Jerusalem. Don't you don't need to turn there, but in places like Matthew 20, where we already were, verse 22, those verses emphasize the climax in Jerusalem. There it says, but Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Talking about his death. James and John may not have known what they were asking for or what they were talking about when they wanted to sit in Jesus' glory, claiming that they were able to do so. Uh, They were able to do whatever is necessary. And they were startled because Jesus informed them, first of all, that they would indeed drink the cup that he drank. He says, you shall be baptized and you shall drink. That's Mark 10, 39. Drink what I'm drinking and baptize what I've been baptized. It's true for Jesus. It was true for James and John. They were in an ongoing process. Of suffering. And the cup that each disciple drinks is different, different portions along the way, different paths, different places we go. All determined by the will of our heavenly father. For the Apostle James, we know in Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, that his cup ended, right? Because King Herod had his head chopped off. All followers of Jesus who love him have to drink from their own cup that the Father lays out for each one. But the cup that Jesus drank was unlike anyone else's. Who has ever been or who will ever be. Scripture reveals this to be the truth. It's interesting because. Most of the cup verses in the New Testament are framed by some type of question or statement where Jesus says or talks about being able. He says, are you able? That's a very important phrase. Mark chapter 10 verses 38 and 39 again. Jesus asks. Are you able to drink the cup? James and John, because ignorance is bliss, they say, sure, we're able. To be able, this is important, is not asking for permission. It's talking about capability or capacity to do it. The disciples did not have the ability. They did not have the capacity to drink the same cup that Jesus was about to drink. This is really, really important, folks. It's important. 
I'm going to give you a fancy $10 theological word that you need to know. Atonement. Atonement. If you want an even longer word to impress all your friends. Propitiation. I'm not even sure I know how to spell that. Propitiation or atonement. That's the cup he's talking about. There is a restrictive nature in Jesus's cup. We see that especially in a passage such as John 13 verses 31 and 38. The passage begins immediately after Jesus dismisses Judas from the Passover meal. It says, when therefore Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Jesus reveals a truth, I think, here that just jars them, especially Peter, because in John thirteen thirty three, listen to what he says. He says, little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also where I am going, you cannot come. Now, when he says you cannot come, that's the exact same word as you are not able. You don't have the ability, you don't have the capacity, you are not qualified to go with me where I am going. He's talking about going to the cross. He's not talking about going to heaven. And he's not saying, I'm, I'm not giving you permission. That's not what he's saying. They're not saying, may we have permission to go with you? No, you may not have permission. He's saying, you may want to go, but the fact of the matter is you are not qualified. No one is qualified. No one is able. You cannot go. It's not that you should not go. You cannot go, even if you wanted to. You know what he's saying? Even if you wanted to save yourself from your sins, you cannot do it. Even if you think that you are qualified, you are good enough. You do enough good things, enough good deeds. You're involved in enough religious activities to earn God's favor. Jesus says, you cannot. It's not possible. It's not possible. You are not able. Atonement. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Not from your own good works. This grace is the gift of God. Not by works, because if it was by works, then we could boast. There's a lot of stuff going through their heads. They're they're feeling a lot of things. But Jesus stops them dead in their tracks. What I am about to do for you, you cannot do for yourself. If you're thinking that you can gain favor with the Heavenly Father, let me stop you in your tracks. You are not able. Because he said he came to die, right? So they were startled. John thirteen thirty six. 
He says, where I go, you, Peter, singular. He's talking just to Peter, just to one person. Peter, John 13, 36, you are not able. You do not have the capacity to follow me now. But notice what he says. You'll follow me later. You'll follow me later. Meaning, you'll die for me later. But you can't die with me now because no one is qualified to die with me. I've got to do this by myself. So the original apostles did not have the ability or capacity to drink the cup that Jesus drank. But that's not limited just to them. No one else ever has been or ever will be able to drink that cup of atoning sacrificial death that he had to drink. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through through 3, the Apostle John was transported to heaven uh, to record that revelation. He's thinking the same thing. He says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open this book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven and no one on earth, there wasn't even anyone under the earth able. That's our same word from Mark 10 and John 13. That same word is in Revelation 5. No one was able. No one had the ability or the capacity to open the book or to look into it. Hmm. Then later, John records the victory. Revelation 5, verses 4 and 5. Says, John says, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book And break the seven seals. He and he alone was able. Only one person can appease the righteous divine wrath of God. That is Jesus. Jesus. It's like the song we sing, right? He alone is worthy. You know, many unbelievers think that if they just are good enough or do enough good things or they convince themselves that they that they are not just that they're I'm just not that bad of a person. That's a a self-deception. Because as we stand in the shadow of the almighty. There's no such thing as someone's not so bad. Do we think that we will be able to appease the righteous anger directed toward our sin on our own? He alone is worthy. Oh, look, I had it up there. Oops. Sorry. Moving on. Okay. What is happening in the few verses we've looked at so far is a contrast 
of capabilities. A contrast of capabilities. Go to 1 Corinthians 10.13. I think this would be a great place to stop today after we finish this piece. This is a verse many of you may already know. I know I have this memorized myself. There's no temptation taken you, but only those temptations that are common to all men. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. There's our word. That's the same word. But with any temptation, a, a really the, a better word there would be trial. It's re, he's really talking about trials and temptations. No trial or temptation has come upon you. But what's common to everyone, God is faithful. He will not allow you to endure something beyond what you're able. But with that trial or temptation, he'll provide a way to escape so that you may be able to endure under it. Now, this is phenomenal. This is an amazing act of grace, because what's being said here is that our God sovereignly measures and restricts how much each one is capable of enduring. He knows you better than yourself. He knows when you're at your breaking point. It's that same idea. He knows when you are no longer able or capable. But he also knows when you are and he keeps bidding you come. He says both. I'm going to be with you. You're going to do this. Yes, it's hard, but you are able. But there are many times when he says. Stop. Or I'm going to stop because I know that you are not able. Our God graciously gives us boundaries, restrictions. He measures out what we are able to endure. That's why I think and the author here says that's why we marvel or at least we should marvel at Jesus. To what depths was this one, this Christ, able to be tempted beyond what we are able? Can it even remotely be fathom, fathomed, measured, or explained? What Jesus was able to receive infinitely surpasses the breadth of what the entire or the entirety of fallen man was able to receive. We simply cannot mentally grasp how much Jesus was able to be tempted and endured. Our only true means of comparison for the present time are our own woefully inadequate failures, he says. The cup that Jesus drank was uniquely his, uniquely alone and unimaginably deep. He alone is able. He alone is worthy. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that we would ponder the truths of this season. 
as we look at the cup that Jesus had to drink, not just at the cross, but throughout the course of his whole life. The scriptures tell us that he was rich, but he became poor for our sake so that we might be rich in spiritual things. But Father, may our minds be riveted on the fact that our Lord was a man just like us. And yet in his sinless nature, he had to endure and bear up under so much more than we can even think or imagine. And that he voluntarily went to the cross to be the object of your divine wrath. Father, may we hear this morning, this is probably the most important thing. May we hear this morning openly confess that we are not able. We are not able to go with Jesus to the cross, to the atoning work, to the shedding of his blood to cover our sins. There is not one drop of blood from one drop or from one person who has ever lived or ever will live that will satisfy your righteous demands. There are not enough good deeds we could do. There are not enough good thoughts we could have about ourselves. There are not enough ways we can impress you. There are not enough religious activities or checklists that we go through that would divert your wrath against our sin. Because only he is worthy. Only he is worthy. So, Father, over the next five weeks, may we understand that it is Christ and Christ alone. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. He's the sustainer. He's the creator. He's the lamb. He's the shepherd. He's everything. And Father, we are guilty of not treating Jesus as if he's everything to us. Even for those of us who are secure in our salvation, sometimes we act like we don't need him anymore. As if we're pleasing you on our own. But it's always Christ's righteousness, even after we come to him. Father, may we rid our lives of all boasting, all bragging, all self-seeking, all self-justification. And just simply turn to the cross and look up at our Christ. He had to go alone. He had to take that cup by himself because we are not able. Father, humble us enough that we would accept this free gift. There's no way we could ever earn it. We need to stop striving. Confess our utter desolate sinfulness and fall upon the mercy and the grace and the love of Christ. May that be what rivets our hearts and our souls and our minds over the next coming weeks. So, Father, we thank you. We praise you for checking us today. Maybe for opening our eyes, open our hearts. We just want to worship Jesus. We want to praise him. We want to thank him. We want to love him. We want to serve him. We want to obey him. Because he's all in all. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen.
Hey, thanks so much for being here this week. Take those study guides with you. Missions Commission, you have a meeting across the way. So thanks for being here today.